We are continuing this morning, moving through the books of the Old Testament, as Emma was saying, along with our reading plan. And at the moment, we're in the books of wisdom. We were in Proverbs a couple of weeks ago, Ecclesiastes. Now we're in Song of Songs this morning. And you guys can take a seat if you want. Actually, Anna and Shane, just stay up here for a second. They're looking very nervous. Song of Songs is, I think, a book that maybe people are less familiar with than some of the other books of the Bible. And it's one that people struggle with a lot, I think. It's, it's a love song. It's erotic love poetry. And I think one of the things, apart from just the, the content of it, which obviously you know, can be quite complex in itself, one of the things people struggle with is, why is this even in the Bible? Well, it doesn't even mention God. It's just a, a, a poem between two people. Now, what are these guys doing up here? Right. Yes, exactly. Where, where, come over here a bit. Can you, I won't bite. When I was a, about 16, I think, I was in our youth group at church. These guys lead our youth here, right? I was in a youth group at church, and we were going through a series of like a topical kind of Bible study type thing, and we're sharing it around. Different people got to lead different things. And it so happened that I was leading the study that was on sex and sexuality and that kind of thing. Who better to teach a study on sex than a 16-year-old who's never been in a relationship, right? I think, I think we all knew less when we finished than when we started. Hopefully that's not the case today, right? I've, hopefully I've gained a bit of wisdom in my years since then. But I just want to pray for you guys quickly because this is one of the issues that our young people are facing, along with other issues as well. And it's a, it's a complex issue and it takes a lot of wisdom, right, and a lot of love and a lot of strength and grace to, to deal with this with young people. So let me just pray for these guys very quickly. Father in heaven, we just pray that your wisdom would flow through Shane and Anna to the young people of our church. We thank you for the work that they're doing there and we pray for your strength, we pray for your love and we pray for your grace that it would just be so evident and we thank you Lord that you reward even even their halting efforts to try and try and serve you and be a witness to your love to our young people. Thank you Lord Jesus. Amen wasn't so bad, right? (laughs) So Song of Songs, why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? It's, some of you might have read it recently because of our reading plan, others others of you might have read it previously, maybe some of you have never read it. We're going to read a little bit from it today, okay, but we believe that the Bible that we have is the Bible that God wants us to have, right? And so if there's something in there, we believe that he wants to give us wisdom through that. So let's see what wisdom we can get this morning from the Song of Songs. It's a love poem, as I said. The the title of it, Song of Songs, that's a Hebrew way of saying this is the greatest of all songs. It's the song of songs, the greatest love song of all time. And it's, there's two main characters in it, a man and a woman, and they're speaking to each other mostly, and they're telling each other how much they love each other. They're professing their love and their passion and how much they want to be together and how much they desire each other. And as I said when talking to Shane and Anna, these issues, the issues of sexuality, they're really complex and they stir up in people all kinds of you know, different feelings. A lot of anxiety often when we start talking about these issues, especially, if we're honest, when the church starts talking about these issues because the church has not got a clean 
you know, sheet when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I just want to recognize that at the start, that everybody's coming from a different place and there's going to be different things that get stirred up when we start talking about this. But I think this is where the song really shines because unlike, unlike some of the other places in the Bible where, you know, and some, some of the things we learn in life, I guess, are you've got to learn them just like, this is true and therefore this is true and therefore this is true. Some things in life you just have to learn like that. I'm a scientist, right? Some science things, you just, you just got to learn like that. But there are other things in life which aren't best learnt like that. And this is where the song really shines. I think this is part of the wisdom of the song, that it doesn't approach these issues like that. It actually invites us into an imaginative reflection on these issues. Through the use of poetry, there's lots of imagery and metaphors and things like that. And it's, it's kind of like a little story. There's not a, a plot as such, but it's just all these little series of vignettes. All right. Let's, uh, let's get a, a taste of what it's all about. Starting in 4, verse 10. You ready? Brace yourselves. Here we go. So this, this is the man speaking. He says, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And then she says to him, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And then he says to her, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. (laughs) This is basically how it goes, right? There's eight chapters of this. He says something to her. She says something back to him. They're both getting quite fired up, right? And it's not... It's not crude, though. I mean, there's a lot of imagery and so on, a lot of this sort of garden imagery. So that it's, yep, we, we definitely get a sense of what's going on. It's like there's something going on down there in the garden, but we're not sure exactly what it is. And actually, it's about more than just sex, right? It's about the passion and the, the love and the desire that is between this man and this woman. So what is the wisdom that we're being invited to reflect on through this song? Well, firstly, it invites us to reflect on the fact that our sexuality is good. It's a good thing. It's a God-created thing. God created humans with sexuality. It's a good thing. One of the traps that parents can fall into with their children, and I do this too much, is the don't trap, right? Don't bring that in here. Don't eat that before dinner. Don't argue with your sister. Don't make a mess. Don't watch that. Sometimes we're just so full of the don'ts. And sometimes the church can fall into this trap as well. Focusing so much on the the don'ts. And if you ask someone, you know, outside the church, what does the church think about sexuality? Probably what they're going to say is a list of don'ts. Well, don't do this and don't do that. Shouldn't do this. 
And, you know, we've been reading through the books of the Old Testament so far this year. And in a book like Leviticus, let's say, which is within the law of the Old Testament, there is a lot of that. There is a lot of, you know, caution about various, not, not just sexuality, all sorts of things. And that's because that fits in with where that is in the story. It's got a, Leviticus has a particular agenda. It's got a particular theme that it's trying to get across. It fits in a certain place in the story. But if that's the way, if the way that we portray the Bible's view on sexuality comes just from that, then we are really selling the Bible short. We're not representing it the way it represents itself. Because here in the song, this is a celebration of human sexuality. It's a celebration of it. And it's a celebration of the human body as well. Let me keep reading in chapter 5, starting from verse 10. This is her talking. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory and so on and so on. Right? You get the point. She goes on and on. And he does the same about her, just, just admiring each other's bodies. And okay, maybe you hear a description like that and you think, well, I'm not sure my body really <laughs> reflects that. Is she just dating Chris Hemsworth or what? I don't know. Maybe it's just two perfect physical specimens just mutually admiring each other. But I don't think so. I don't think so. Because actually, in the first chapter, where it starts off, we actually get the sense that she doesn't think she's all that beautiful, actually. She says in chapter 1, verse 6, Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard, I had to neglect. So she's basically saying, I've been out working on the farm, and you know my skin is weathered, and I haven't had any time to look after myself and make myself as lovely as I would like to. But he doesn't see that at all. His response to her is, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. It's his love for her that actually makes her lovely to him rather than the other way around. And vice versa, it's, it's her love for him that makes him so beautiful to her. The song is not just a celebration of the perfect human body. It's a celebration of all human bodies. It's a celebration of the fact that as humans, we are physical beings. We have a body. We are not just spirit, just soul. You know, I saw a, um, I think it's still there at the moment. There's a poster in Woolworths in Mount Barker here on the front door. They often use it as like a notice board, community things and stuff. And there's a poster there for a short course on Gnosticism. I don't know if any of you know what Gnosticism is. It's a strange word. It starts with a silent G, believe it or not. Gnosticism is an ancient philosophy and one of its core, core beliefs is that the physical world is bad and our human bodies especially are bad. And the ideal thing would be for us to escape from this physical world, escape from our human bodies and just be pure spirit living you know, on another plane of existence somewhere. That's Gnosticism. And in the first few centuries of the church after Jesus, the church 
absolutely rejected this philosophy because they said that doesn't fit at all what the Bible says about the physical world or about our human bodies. God created the physical world. It's good. God created our human bodies. They're good. Our, our goal as Christians, our hope, the hope that we have as Christians is not to one day escape from our physical bodies. We will have physical bodies in heaven. Heaven's going to be physical because our hope is not that God will some, some day in the future destroy all of physical matter and creation, but that he'll renew it. Our hope is that our bodies will be resurrected, not destroyed. And the song is a celebration of the human body. But another thing that the song invites us to reflect on is that, yes, our sexuality is good, but it's also powerful. It's a very powerful force and driver in the lives of people. It's not something to be taken lightly. Three times during this song, when things are sort of you know, building, they're, they're saying things back and forth, and, and the passion's building, and it's getting very heated... Three times, the woman will just stop at that point and turn, sort of like break character, if you like, for a moment, and turn to her friends in the play. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and you know the, one of the characters breaks the fourth wall for a minute and just like looks at the camera and it's like, this one's just for you guys, and then like back into the scene. <laughs> it's like that. Three times, the, everything's building up, they're, they're getting quite heated, and then she stops and says... Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There's a recognition there from the woman that this is a powerful force and we shouldn't take it lightly. We shouldn't take it lightly. This passion is so strong, it drives people to do monumental things, things that change their own lives and the lives of other people, both for good and bad. Right? It's not, it's not that it's always bad. It's not that it's always good. It depends the context and, and how it's used, basically. It's a good thing itself. It's not always used for good purposes. But it can be. It drives people to give up their lives sometimes for the one that they love. Like Leonardo DiCaprio hanging off the end of the raft in Titanic, you know. <laughs> giving up his own life to save the woman he loves. And sure, there was room on the raft. It was all in vain. <laughs> Let's not go there. We've been reading through the Old Testament this year and we've seen time and time again through the stories of the Old Testament where this passion drives people to do monumental things, things that have huge ramifications for their own lives and for the lives of other people around them. It drove Jacob to work 14 years for a man who treated him badly because of the woman he loved. It drove Potiphar's wife to lock up an innocent man, Joseph, in prison. It drove Samson to betray his own people. It drove Boaz to care for his widowed relative. It drove David to murder a man and take his wife for himself. It drove King Xerxes to spare Esther's people from genocide. This is a powerful force and it makes us do certain things. I don't want to say that in the sense that we're not responsible for our actions, because of course we are, but we know, we understand, right? It's a driver in people's lives. And you know, it's easy for us to 
point the finger at other people here and say, well, look at this person over here. They're not listening to the wisdom of the song. But we'd probably be wise to actually reflect on this ourselves. When have I not listened to the wisdom of the song? When don't I listen to the wisdom of the song? It reminds me of that episode in Jesus' life where a woman is brought to him who's been caught in adultery, apparently. This group of men bring this woman to Jesus and say, this woman's been caught in adultery. Our law says we should stone her, Jesus. What do you say? Where was the man, I'd like to know. It takes two to commit adultery, last time I checked. No man, just, just the woman is brought before Jesus. And Jesus says, let the one of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And the old men amongst the mob, they're the first ones to drop their stones, right? They know they have not always listened to the wisdom of the song. And then pretty soon the young men as well drop their stones and they all leave. And Jesus says to the woman, where are the ones who accuse you? And she says, they've all gone away. And he says, well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. You know, we probably all relate differently to that story depending on where we're coming from. Maybe some of us identify with the woman dragged before, you know, this, this angry mob dragged before Jesus for judgment, essentially. Maybe some of us relate to the mob. You know, maybe we've been the ones pointing the fingers angrily at other people. Or maybe, we're, maybe we relate to the man who's not in this scene, who was involved somewhere, has apparently gotten off scot-free, but will have to deal with the, the shame and the guilt and the consequences of that in his own life. But I love Jesus' response. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. This passion is a strong force in the lives of people and we shouldn't take it lightly. In fact, it's so strong. In chapter 8, the woman goes on to say, starting in verse 6, For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. But let's just hit the brakes here for a second, right? Because is this just poetic exaggeration? Surely this is just exaggeration now. This love, as strong as it is, as powerful as it is, as much of a driving force it is in people's lives, is it really as strong as death? Is it really as unyielding as the grave? It's not, right? We have to say it's not. Because if it were, there'd be no widows and widowers amongst us. And there are. This love, it is a powerful force but it does have its limits. Let's be honest. It does have its limits. Death is the, death is the strongest thing we know about. Even this love is not, as pow not powerful enough to stop death. But like the other Old Testament books that we've been reading this year, there's a foreshadowing here. There's a pointing forward to something greater. There's a pointing forward to a love that is greater than this love. And that's why... Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Ephesians, and he's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife and, and what that should look like and, and 
what that should be based on, you know, the, the wisdom there. Maybe he's reflecting on the song himself. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, he, qu- he quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul goes on to add, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This love, which God created us to experience, God has given our sexuality to us as a gift, and the the passion and the love and the desire that comes with that, it's a gift of God to us. And the purpose of it, this is what Paul's getting at here, the purpose of it is to point us towards a greater love. It's like a little taste of a greater love that exists. If this love that we, we experience in our lives if we know how intense this can be, how strong this can be, imagine how great the love of the one who created this love for us. He's given it to us as a taste of his love. Because his love is really the only love that is stronger than death. His love is the only love that is as unyielding as the grave. And just like the the woman and the man in this song, just like they experience, God doesn't love us because we're lovely. It's his love for us that makes us lovely to him. He loves us and so we are lovely to him, just like the woman and the man are reflecting on here. Whether or not we always feel lovely, we probably don't, right? I mean, I know I don't. I don't think any of us really do. Always feel like we're worthy of being loved, by God, with such an intense and passionate and blazing love. And yet, he loves us like that. And that is why we are lovely to him. Because he loves us like that. Let me invite the team to come back up. So, as I said, all of us are coming to this. When we come to the song, we're coming from different places. Some of us are, have been in a relationship for a long time like the one described in the song. Some of us had that once and now don't anymore. Some of us have never had it. Some of us maybe don't want it. We're all coming from different places. But the song invites us to reflect on on this as well, that as good as human relationships are, as good as the kind of love that's described in the song is, it can't satisfy our deepest need for intimacy and belonging that can only come from a greater love from God's love because that's that's how he's created us yes this love that's in the song which is his gift to us it's a taste for us of what his love is like it's designed to sort of spur us on there must be something more right even people who are happily married I've been married for over 20 years I'm very happily married but there Marriage itself cannot satisfy every deepest longing of my heart. It can't. No marriage can. It's not meant to. That's the point. It's not meant to. It's meant to point us towards something greater. And this song, which is called the Song of Songs, it's the greatest love song ever written. Actually, it points us towards an even greater song, which is the song that God has been singing to his people since the beginning of time. It is a song that will continue past death. It's the song that drove him to become part of his creation, to become a human being and experience death himself, but to overcome that because of this love. 
And this love will last past his death. It will last past our, our death. And this song is the song that God will be singing for eternity to his people. Amen. So let me invite you as we go into another worship song here and we, and we receive this love that God has for us as we worship him. Let me invite you if you want to respond Please come forward afterwards. This space down here is always open and I or one of the pastors would be happy to talk with you, pray with you. And if there's anyone who has never responded to this song and this has stirred something in you this morning, you want to know more about this, this greatest of all songs that God is singing over his creation. Please get in touch or come forward afterwards and we'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Amen. Thanks, team.